0: Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and this week, the Academy Awards. Every episode, you get a new pair of feminists to talk about the thing we can't get off our minds. And today, you've got me, Nadira Goff, Associate Culture Writer at Slate. The Academy Awards, also known as and hereto referred to as the Oscars, is around the corner once again. And this year, the ceremony is making headlines for many reasons. For one, the 2023 Oscars is following a highly controversial broadcast, when an altercation between Will Smith and Chris Rock last year not only stunned viewers, but also overshadowed the female nominee's historic wins, including Jane Campion becoming the third female director in history and second female director in a row to win the award for... Best Director, and Ariana DeBose becoming the first queer woman of color to win Best Supporting Actress. This year, the Oscars will have a crisis team to somehow deal with any critical mishaps. How? I'm not so sure. But one thing that's clear is there is no crisis team to deal with the Oscars' history of overlooking marginalized groups, including women, in the entertainment industry as a whole, but particularly behind the camera. But that problem, of course, doesn't start with the Oscars, but with the barriers to actually getting a film made. On today's show, I'm going to be joined by Daniela Taplin-Lundberg, host of the Hollywood Gold podcast, as well as a film producer and founder of Stay Gold Features, the production company behind films such as Harriet and Honey Boy, to discuss all of this and more. But first, we're going to take a quick break. Hey, Waves listeners, if you're loving the show and want to hear more, subscribe to our feed. New episodes come out every Thursday morning. While you're there, check out our other episodes, too, like last week's about why dull marriage might actually be good for you. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to The Waves. I am joined by Daniela Taplin-Lundberg, host of the Hollywood Gold podcast and founder of Stay Gold Features. Daniela, thanks so much for talking to me today.
1: Oh, my God. Nadir, I'm so happy to be here. I'm so excited to talk movies.
0: Stagold features your production company, which is women-led, is behind plenty of beautiful, again, women-led movies like Alma Amahurel's Honey Boy and Nickyatu Juice's Nanny, which I have to say, those were two of my absolute favorite movies of the respective years in which they came out. Huge fan of both of those movies. That makes me so happy. Thank you. Oh, I mean, thank you. I sung their praises so, so much. So these are movies that tell overlooked or more intimate stories crafted by women or about women or both in the case of Nanny, it's both. What drove you to make Stagold features with that sort of frame set of the types of pictures that you were going to produce? And then what was the process like, including the challenges of making the company?
1: Well, I'll start with sort of my light bulb moment in my career, which sort of frames the rest of the movies I've chosen to produce over the last 12, 13 years. Um, I started making movies right out of college. And at that point, there was no sort of framework or mission statement, right? I was just a young woman trying to make it, knew I wanted to produce and wanted to make sort of anything that anyone would make. And so I was just lucky to be there. Um, And I worked my way up. I was a PA and I worked up the system and then kind of got bold early on and just started finding scripts and meeting with filmmakers and trying to raise money in any way I could. And I did that for many years and made a lot of movies um, at a company called Plum Pictures with two partners. And some were successful, but most were not successful. And then we um, got a script called The Kids Are All Right, which was a script that Lisa Chilodenko co-wrote and was going to direct. And it was the story of a lesbian couple and their two children. And we just thought it felt so original and funny and novel. But really, it was just a story about family. And the script had been all over Hollywood. No one wanted to finance it because they thought it was really too niche. It was about a gay couple, and that wouldn't attract a larger audience. And me and my partners were like, no, this film feels so bold and something that hasn't been said before so we scrapped together a little over four million dollars and the movie became a huge breakout hit at Sundance and went on to win a Golden Globe and it was just incredible if you're going to make a mark in this industry you've got to take swings and you've got to be bold and particularly coming from independent film I was like you can't just follow what everyone else is going to do Um, you got to try to make things that you're not seeing in the market that you think people need to see and want to see. So after that, I started this new company. I really quickly just started to gravitate a lot towards female filmmakers because I felt like they were submitting scripts and giving me projects that I felt like hadn't been set in the marketplace. When I got Honey Boy from Alma, I was like this movie feels so original i hadn't had a voice like that before and i just went for it and no one wanted to finance that film um and the same with harriet you can come on back
0: i won't hurt you bad you stay at home stay with john stay with us would you like that
1: I'm going to be free or die. That was a script that had been at Disney since the 90s and no one wanted to finance it. And I was like, I can't believe there hasn't been a feature film made about Harriet Tubman. And I just love The Way In. It was like America's first superhero. That's our Wonder Woman. If we can frame it that way, then that's a story people are going to want to come out and see in droves. And so my whole sort of methodology became trying to change hearts and minds, through entertainment, right? You don't want everything to feel like medicine or else people won't come and see it. But if you can make something feel really entertaining and sticky, um, then maybe you are sort of impacting people without them even sort of fully realizing it.
0: No, that's really interesting because I have been watching the Oscars and have loved movies for almost my entire life. And I feel like I'm someone who is very aware of social situations or inequalities and that kind of thing. But it wasn't until Reese Witherspoon made her own production company and started to get a lot of recognition for telling women's stories. I mean, like, here was a very famous actress who decided that, hey, I read a lot of books and there are a lot of great books that could be turned into great movies, but they're about women and so no one wants to do it. And so I'm going to do it. And it wasn't until that started to get some major critically acclaimed recognition that I realized, oh, wow, there was a whole dearth of stories um, about women in these sort of critically acclaimed circles that I maybe had felt but hadn't even noticed before. And you kind of spoke to how you go about choosing your films, which is that these stories are kind of the ones that just naturally speak to you. But how much does that actually truly play a factor into your decision making?
1: I think at this point in my career, part of my method very early on was go out and figure out how to raise your own money and structure financing and speak to investors so that you don't have to wait for studios or mini majors or anyone to say no to something that you believe in. And so I think that very, very early on, I realized that you have to make people money in order for them to invest in you again. And so you have to make decisions that are not only you feel will be impactful, to the culture, but you have to make money. You have to figure out a way to make content that people are going to want to see, people are going to want to buy, and people are going to want to pay subscriptions for. And so that sort of Venn diagram became really the way that I looked at all the things I produce. You can produce something and it could take six, seven years. I mean, I have one project that's been on my sleeve for 15 years. So it's not like, Oh, it'll be easy and a one-off, you know, I'll commit three months of my life and it'll get done. These things each are like birthing their own babies. And so... (laughs) Every movie I make, I sort of feel like, all right, I can see how this is going to be an event. This first movie I made with my new company, Stay my company's now seven years old, but um, was a movie called Patty Cakes, which um, we took to Sundance. And it was a, a story of a bigger girl from New Jersey who had dreams of becoming a rap star. And the Music was so original. The story felt like something I hadn't seen. The star of the film was this wonderfully unique looking woman. And I was just like, this is the kind of thing that feels like people are going to jump out of their seats with excitement when this woman wins. Mind you, I pay attention to the market. I read everything. I understand what people want to see and what they don't want to see. I really try to be a imbiber of culture and what Things are happening in the world. And so it's not blind. It's not, well, I think this is great. So other people should, you know, I really try to understand what people are ready for and what they want to see. People just, you know, they gravitate to the same stories again and again. We just have to figure out how to tell them in different ways with different faces and do it in an interesting way. So,
0: And I think that it's really interesting And I would like to hear you talk more about the sort of challenges of marketing that and getting the money, because I would assume that as a relatively new producer, when you first started your first company, obviously now you have a cachet to your name and you've got your reputation out there and all of that great stuff. But I would imagine that just starting out and being a woman, that there would be maybe more barriers to fundraising to marketing to selling something to making it so that you can take a chance on something that no one else would necessarily take a chance on and so I'm really interested in those challenges and the ways that you sort of got around them I mean I think you already mentioned one big one which is just being prepared reading the market making sure that you kind of know your stuff but how did you make it work you know
1: (laughs) I think back to that time, and I think the things I relied on very early on instinctually, was just knowing the nuts and bolts of production and the business of it all. Because it was a little bit trial by fire, and I was making a lot of these $2 million movies, you were really doing a deep dive into how little money you could get a movie made, right? Because me and my partners weren't able to raise that much money. And so someone would say, oh, we can make that for five. And then we'd say, no, no, we can make it for two. We know how to do that. And so you begin to really learn the tier system and the different SAG rates for different um, budget ranges and DGA and WGA and you really sort of have to get into the nitty gritty of insurance and setting up your LLC and your bank accounts. And it's like you're launching a company. And so I found that because I was able to speak about that in a way that felt believable. And based on experience, people started to trust me more. And then the other thing was, I always really, even before I kind of identified my mission statement, I really tried to gravitate towards material that felt sort of elevated and and smart. I was an English lit major in college. I wanted the adaptation of the Henry James novella What Maisie Knew in a Modern Setting. To me, that felt like, oh my god, that feels so novel and exciting, but also weighted in literary history. And so I was really drawn to stuff that felt Um, smart. And I think the other key to working in independent film is you're never going to pay these big stars their quotes, you can't compete with the studios in terms of how much you can pay them. But what you can do is offer really, really interesting parts that they can sink their teeth into, that's going to stretch them as actors and filmmakers. And so that sort of became the edge that I had and my partners had, we were trying to make interesting things that weren't being offered in the studio world. I would say those were probably the three sort of ways to start to get um, notice in the industry. And then the other thing was we just started making things. We were scrappy. We were figuring out how to get the kids are all right made when no one else could get it made. And so that helped sort of define our careers a little bit early
0: on as well. We're going to take a break here, but if you want to hear more from Daniela and myself on another topic, check out our Slate Plus segment, where today we'll be talking about some of our favorite feminist films. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, no hitting the paywall on the Slate site, and bonus content of shows like this one. To learn more, go to Slate.com forward slash The Waves Plus. That's Slate.com forward slash The Waves Plus. And we're back with the waves. I particularly absolutely love the idea of sort of using the mainstream studios and kind of turning against them for what they are, like using what they are, which is places that produce sort of more mainstream stories, which means that they might not have the sort of media roles for premier actors to sink their teeth into, and kind of using that to your advantage as a way to provide something else or this sort of third other space. I think that that's so genius and so, so smart. I also love what you were saying just about learning the nuts and bolts of everything. I was recently talking to my mom Uh, and she was telling me uh, the story about how she was talking to this guy and he was complaining about how women are so gossipy. They are the gossipy people. Women are so much more likely to gossip than men. And my mom was telling me that she responded with, well, actually, no, it's men who are the gossips (laughs) in terms of what I know. And I find that to be so true, because the thing that I told my mom is that historically women have had to keep secrets to stay alive, right? Women know how to keep secrets if they really have to keep a secret. And I think similarly, they also know how to see an entire situation, an entire field ahead of them, how to read the field, right? Like they know kind of what every player is doing. They kind of have the insider knowledge on everything. And so I think that that is also something that maybe just kind of speaks more naturally to the history of women having to sort of survive and stay alive and this sort of like self-preservation aspect that we have, which is, well, we have to actually know everything about everyone and in every facet because we have to know how this thing is done so we know where our place is in it and so that we know sort of the best place for us in it. And I think That is a connection that I'm finding to so many different aspects of life and industries. And you just helped me make it to the entertainment industry as well. And I think that that's just so, so fascinating. Um, And sort of similarly, I kind of wanted to talk about your earlier statement about producing as a sort of uh, metaphor or similar experience to motherhood. Because you also mentioned it in your podcast that making a movie is kind of like having a child. And you mentioned that you are a mom. And I think that sometimes we kind of overuse the phrase of calling something uh, our baby, like something that we've created and that we're really protective about. Um, So in what ways is producing like motherhood or like having a child?
1: I think the metaphor I use most is that production can be so, so incredibly painful while you're going through it, you're like, I don't know why I'm doing this. This is so painful. It's thankless, especially in independent film. It's not like you're getting rich, right? You're literally the last stop. Everything is your fault. You're basically the CEO of the movie. You're in charge of making sure it moves smoothly. And then once it's out into the world, and you've done all the hard work, and people are enjoying that movie or that metaphorical baby, you love it so much. And you sort of forget all the really, really painful parts. And if you remembered those things too cognizantly, you wouldn't do it again, right. But I find that producing is really like You've kind of got to anticipate everything in the way that mothers do, right? I saw this cartoon at one point. I'm not going to communicate it well, but it's a mother moving through her day and the father. And I'm not going to stereotype gender roles here, but the partner is like, what can I do to help? And The father then does the dishes, but there's a hundred other things that the mother is thinking about as she's walking through the day and dealing with the kids and then forgetting that she has to make the doctor appointment. And then she's got to switch the laundry over. And then, oh yeah, she's got to go get the school equipment for the kids because they're starting a new season of whatever sports the next weekend. And she's got to sign up for that thing. And there's so many things on the plate of a producer and a mother. (laughs) And it's very hard to communicate to anyone else what all those things are because you're you're worrying about your actors, you're worrying about your director, you're worrying about your crew and your budget and your investors and making sure that you're getting the pre-sales you need so that the value of the movie is what it needs to be in order to justify this budget. And so I think what I mean by producing is you're just so hard to describe all those little things that sort of keep you up at night, but you really ultimately are the one who's keeping an eye on all those things, even though it's the director's job to show up in the morning and direct the cast and lead the charge on set. You know what I mean? And um, and so you're responsible for that larger whole. You know what I mean? It's not any one part.
0: Okay, Daniela. So let's say we made a hypothetical movie. It got critical acclaim. What is the process of getting a movie like that to be nominated for an Oscar or considered or shortlisted for an Oscar? And do you find that you strategize differently depending on the type of movie you're campaigning for or anything like that?
1: So I think the number one thing still is quite an art form that doesn't just happen because your movie is fantastic, you know? Um, so I would say the first thing is pairing with a company that can really support that kind of thing and also believes in the movie as much as you do as a producer. On Harriet, because Cynthia Erivo, um got two nominations, we got one for Best Actress, and then she got a nomination for Best Song, and... Focus Features really understood the market. They understood all the players they needed to to hire, to make that happen. They understood that Cynthia gave such an incredible performance. They really leaned into that. And by the same token, Cynthia was really willing to do the work, to go to every single event. And you don't really get paid for that. It's a lot of hard work to court your cast and your talent around the world for several months. It's like a whole other job. (laughs) Now, most of the time, I find those things to be really, really valuable to talent and to filmmakers because suddenly everyone wants to work with them and everyone is acknowledging how talented they are and it really can um, grow their careers in a way that maybe other things wouldn't. So I think it's a really interesting process, but a lot of the times it's its own industry.
0: I'm going to ask you maybe a polarizing question so you can answer as democratically as you'd like. Um, But how do you feel about the Oscars especially given their not-so-diverse history and sort of the inequity that's built into the system, how do you feel about the Oscars as the sort of prime marker of cinematic achievement?
1: I would say I feel much differently today than I did 10 years ago, which is to say that I think being on the producer's board at the Oscars, I see all the moves that are happening internally. I see that the Academy is really trying to be a leader that really does try to put their money where their mouth is and the initiatives that they're sort of putting into the marketplace um, with regard to diversity and inclusion with regard to their membership is one that feels like it's having an impact and by the way rome wasn't built in a day the journey is long but it is one that is happening and it is something that is being constantly talked about and constantly addressed and there are adjustments that are made i would say yearly, if not monthly. And I'm like, okay, good. Like, this is what needs to happen. This is how the face of the world changes. And our industry has a lot to do with what is projected out into the world, right? Um, And so I will say just personally, I tried to make a movie 10 to 12 years ago. um, And it was based on a book by a female uh, writer, and it was female subject matter. And 10 years ago, there was a short list of maybe three to four female filmmakers that could have gotten the film made. Today, the list is much, much longer. And I'm not saying like it's good enough, but I'm just saying I have seen significant change over my career, and that makes me happy. And so there's so much work to do. But I do see change. And I do see the movies that I am making and financing, but other people are coming on to finance with. And then there are the movies that I have no part in. And they're getting made as well with diverse and female filmmakers that um, weren't being made seven years
0: ago. Just looking at the sort of repertoire of movies that your production company has produced, they are really impressive in sort of the nicheness of them, the stories that they tell And the people who tell them, I think, is a sort of testament to the industry changing. So I definitely want to take a moment to credit you for that, since that's the kind of the one thing that I feel like you were missing from your description. (laughs)
1: That really means a lot to me. But listen, I can make all these movies in the world with filmmakers I believe in. But if no one buys those movies, they do not get seen. And so I have to credit our community and our industry a little bit and the world at large for wanting to see those movies, wanting to step up to buy those movies, put them out in the right way. It's got to be a seismic thing. And so I love you for saying that I really do, because it's something that I think about all the time. And I try to I want to be bold um, and I want to make change, but it cannot happen alone. And so I'm heartened by the
0: evolution. Daniela, thank you so much for talking to me. This has been really, really fun. And I look forward to Stay Gold's future projects.
1: Thank you, Nadira. Thanks for having me on and I'll speak to you soon.
0: And that's our show this week. The Waves is produced by Shayna Roth. Daisy Rosario is Senior Supervising Producer. Alicia Montgomery is Vice President of Audio. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at thewaves at slate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different host, different topic, same time and place. Thank you so much for being a Slate Plus member. And since you're a member, you get this weekly segment. Today, Daniela and I are going to talk about our favorite feminist movies, however we define it. So, I'm just someone who really loves to discuss favorite movies or movies that surprised us or inspired us. And I thought what a great way to sneak in a quick moment where we can just fawn over our favorite movies and why we like them. I was really interested in this question because I was thinking to myself, man, I don't even know how I would define a feminist movie. (laughs) And I think that for me, the sort of definition Definition that I came up with or landed on is that I love movies that just depict women doing whatever it is that they want to do and whatever they feel is best for them. And I like to push back on the idea that a feminist movie or a movie that uplifts women has to be one in which the protagonist is female and is a good person. Like sometimes I think it's important to show women making mistakes. I think it's important to show women struggling. And I think it's important to show that autonomy and freedom means actual autonomy and freedom, you know, which means sometimes it's the autonomy to do bad things (laughs) or to get ourselves into sort of sticky situations. And so there's obviously some just general run-of-the-mill, really great films that I would deem feminist that I love, like Clueless, Set It Off, is also a huge one for me, which is, again, a movie where there are women who are not making the best decisions, but they're making their own decisions. Um, I think two that I've seen recently that I absolutely love, um, they are not recent themselves. They're just two films that I happened to watch recently. The first is Down With Love. Have you ever seen Down With Love?
1: The Renee you uh, and McGregor. It's funny. I meant to watch it, but tell me about it.
0: It's on streaming right now, and it's really, really great. It's this sort of satirical depiction of this uh, woman who writes this book about how to sort of maintain your own sense of freedom and strong will as a woman by abstaining from sex with men. So she writes this book and uh, Ewan McGregor plays this journalist and he's also a hotshot lover boy who sleeps with a whole bunch of women and, you know, is that whole kind of thing. And so he hates the woman who wrote this book. He hates the idea that this book exists. Basically, he just doesn't like the idea that women can kind of have this sexual autonomy in which they can decide whether they want to have sex or not and, like, don't fall for the same tricks that men have been putting on them, which is faking to fall in love with them and stuff. And so he goes undercover as a journalist trying to make Renee Zellweger, who's the author of this book, fall in love with him to kind of break her own rules. And so that he can publish this sort of breaking story about how the super popular book is trash, basically. And it's such a fun movie i think it takes place in a fictionalized 50s or 60s it's uber stylized it's so fun and there's a whole third act turn that's very surprising and it just ramps up the sort of feminine autonomy even more than was in the movie previously and so i don't want to spoil it but it's such a fun ride but i think there's also some really great morals and quandaries being discussed and worked through in that movie That was just some of our Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, go to slate.com slash thewavesplus to become a Slate Plus member today. Slate.com slash thewavesplus.